And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including hosts Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I'm your host, Dan Hesse. Today's guest mentor is John Stanton, Chairman and CEO of the Seattle Mariners and Chairman of Trilogy Partnerships. John serves on the boards of directors of Costco and Microsoft, which today is the world's most valuable company. John is truly a wireless pioneer, co-founding three of the top 10 wireless operators in the U.S. during the last 40 years. John helped found McCall Cellular, where he was chief operating officer and vice chairman, which became the largest wireless operator in the U.S. and was sold to AT&T to become AT&T Wireless. He then founded Western Wireless, where he served as chairman and CEO until it was acquired by Altel, and Voicestream, where he served as chairman and CEO, selling it to Deutsche Telekom in 2001 for $50.7 billion, which back then was real money. Deutsche Telekom renamed the company T-Mobile USA, and it remains headquartered in Bellevue, Washington. John also served as chairman of Clearwire until it was sold to Sprint in 2013. And John is also a member of the Wireless Hall of Fame. So welcome, John. It's a real pleasure to have you on our show. And always a pleasure to see you. Well, a little bit about you growing up. I think you grew up in the Seattle area. You attended Whitman College. You went to Harvard, got an MBA. You're 26 years old. You're working for a consulting firm, Ernst & Winnie. Uh, you've made three visits to this paging and cable company, little known called Macaw, uh, in uh, you know in the Seattle area, You know, three, three times with no success. And you decide to try one last time. And you go and get some market data from the FCC on two experimental wireless markets. For our listeners, this was before cellular service was commercially available. You do a bunch of math, you plug the math into some of Ernst & Winnie's models, which were really developed for cable TV. You go into the, you make your last and fourth attempt, you go into McCall, you meet with a guy named Ed Hopper. He immediately takes to you and your math, hires you on the spot and as they say, the rest is history. What was it, John, about wireless, which again, really didn't exist back then, that you had such faith in, such belief in that you would, that, you know, this would be your way of getting into a new consulting client by trying to talk them into going into a business they weren't even in? It was a amazing time. It was I got out of school in 1979, and um, uh, the FCC started asking questions uh, in November of 79 as to how and whether to uh, allow wireless communications, cellular mobile, as we called it back then, uh, to be introduced to the public. Um, and what I learned about consulting was that you uh, get rewarded for two things. Number one, becoming an expert in something, and number two, selling business to a client. So. 
I have to confess, I became an expert somewhat by default. There were 60 people in my office and 59 of them passed on the opportunity to become an expert in wireless communications. And so I um, uh, was the self-appointed expert uh, and I uh, uh, went all over the country to try to find clients to uh, hire us to help them make applications to the FCC, which ended up being due in June of 1982. Uh, and as you point out, I uh, uh, called on uh, the McCaw family uh, three different times, uh, had very little success, and they hired a consultant named Ed Hopper, uh, who had been in the cable TV business, which I think helped. Um, and he was the one who was charged with the responsibility of making applications. It happened that the day that I met with Ed was in April of 1982. And uh, that happened to be the day that the FCC uh, posted the rules for making applications a mere two months later in June of 82. So Ed needed help to uh, do the financial models, uh, the tariffs and charges for the uh, application and even the marketing studies. And so he hired us to um, uh, to be those uh, the consultants and I became the lead on that. So uh, he believed that I was an expert at, as you say, 26 years old, in uh, uh, wireless communications, and I accomplished the second goal when he hired us as a client. Both reading books and talking to folks who were back there in the early days of, of wireless, uh, they say one of the essential elements of building Macaw to the wireless company it was, was you, your boundless energy, charisma, negotiating skills, you put together this kind of national footprint um, and I read about like the counter alliance. That sounds like something out of Star Wars or something that you were key to putting together these big deals with Knight Ritter, Lynn Broadcasting. What what did you do back then? And did you have a life? Were you just working twenty four seven? Because that's uh, that's what I heard about you as well. Well, I I was uh, I was single at the time, so that uh, that certainly helped. I uh, uh, wasn't. Uh, Terry and I got married in '87, so I uh, I had plenty of opportunity to uh, uh, to work those long uh, those long days. But the um, uh, the I think that some of the belief, and Dan, you were a part of this as well, um, that we had was wireless communications represented a change in the way to think about communications. Uh, phone numbers historically been associated with places, your home phone, your uh, your office phone. I mean, if you if you even if you look at uh, uh, your outlook at it today, it still uh, refers to uh, uh, your your home phone, your business phone, and your fax, and then your mobile. But um, uh, we completely uh, uh, changed the paradigm uh, with phone numbers being associated with individuals. And that was a concept that was understandable, I think, to young people. And it's not a, it's not a coincidence that you and Craig McCaw and many of the people who were successful in the early days of wireless uh, were too young to uh, be hung up on the historic way that the uh, the industry had been structured. And I think that the opportunity for all of us was to think differently. If you asked a, 
uh, 26, or I think you were 28 at the time, year old, um, uh, whether it made sense to have a phone that you could carry around and would free you from having to be in a place that almost all of us would say yes. Um, uh, folks that worked for AT&T at the time did a study uh, and concluded that uh, uh, by the year 2000, there would be 1 million wireless phones in the US. They were only off by two digits. There were 100 million wireless phones in the US. And that dynamic, I think, was understandable to those of us who um, uh, were, if you will, liberated from a, a, a more pedestrian way of thinking about telecommunications. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, John Stanton. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on List of Shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. John, I read or heard, I think both, that... After an all-night negotiating session, you know, you would have when you were, you know, getting these licenses in a smoke-filled room, in the morning you had to be rushed to the hospital because your contact lenses had adhered to your eyeballs. Is that true? It, it is, Dan. Um, you had referred in the last segment to the uh, the alliance and the counter-alliance. The uh, uh, FCC began accepting applications for uh, wireless in 82, um, in the rounds for, uh, the 30th to the 90th largest markets in the U S they accepted them in groups of 30. Um, they got a lot more applications than they expected. Uh, they got a, uh, an average of about eight in the uh, second group of 30. And then I think it was 15 or so in the third, which because the licenses were going to be resolved based on comparative hearings was just too many uh, parties for the FCC to resolve. So they um, encouraged the applicants, including McCall, where I was at the time, um, to go through a, a process of negotiating a settlement so all the parties would share in those licenses. Um, the largest companies in the country um, in terms of applications, companies like MCI and Western Union had all gotten together and the smaller companies of which McCaw was one also got together. And then we eventually had a process that really did involve the smoke-filled room and about 30 parties, 30 companies sitting and literally trading interests back and forth. I'll trade you a Fresno for an Austin uh, and uh, that it may be the most remarkable thing I've done in my entire career. We uh, we sat for a week and got all those things done. Um, and I wore contact lenses at the time. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know if it was the smoke or the lack of sleep, but um, uh, I uh, uh, one of the attorneys uh, rushed me to the hospital to literally peel my contact lens off of my eye. Um, uh, yeah, but fortunately, we got all our trades done before that happened. I uh, I wasn't supposed to wear contacts for the uh, uh, next few days. And so my flight home, I, I looked like a blind man, um, uh, kind of seeing my way through the cabin on the airplane and uh, finding, uh, 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 finding my way home. I, I took a car home. Uh, and the funny thing was um, that my lease was up 
on my uh, on my apartment. I had to move. Um, and so I went home and uh, uh, one of my uh, good friends, Michael Thompson, went with me to the uh, to find an apartment. Uh, and I said, would I like this? And he said, yeah, you'd like it. So I rented it literally sight unseen. So uh, the, uh, the, the trading all got done and I got a new apartment out of the deal. Well, when I was appointed CEO at AT&T Wireless, even though AT&T had bought the company two years earlier, the Macaw culture was still very much alive there. And you know, even as an AT&Tier, when I got there, I thought it was a fantastic culture. I didn't want to change anything. And one of the tenets of the culture that I really liked and I believed in was, was delegation. You know, I believe that particularly as a CEO, if you have a clear strategy, the right team and a strong culture, you can delegate. And that's really the key for large companies, especially to, to operate quickly. When I see a big company that doesn't, that's not nimble, that's not quick, uh, it's because the CEO doesn't really know how to manage scale. Very often it's a founder. As the company gets larger, they can't let go of the reins uh, because the speed of a company is really the number of decisions made daily, which is directly proportional to the number of decision makers. It seemed though, this was one of the things that Craig got right in that he gave you and a few other key people a tremendous amount of rope, flexibility, authority, uh, which was key to the company's success when you became a founder and CEO, did you follow the same the, the same thing from a cultural perspective? I, I did, Dan, and I, I think I, I would uh, I I would note one thing in your question, and that is um, the wisdom that you had when you went into AT and T um, to or to what was Macaw at the time when you uh, after AT and T acquired um, to to look around and and think about. Uh, who was making decisions and how you make those decisions there. Um, we uh, acquired a series of, of companies um, that became uh, voice stream and uh, ultimately became T-Mobile. Uh, and I, uh, I, I uh, stole this from a great book on company transitions. Um, uh, and it's called the uh, turtle on a fence post um, rule. Uh, and if you um, uh, show up and you see a turtle on top of a fence post before you pick it up and put it back on the ground, ask yourself the question as to why it's there. The, the metaphor in a, uh, in a company is um, that uh, it, before you change the way decisions are made or before you change a decision, um, make sure you understand why that decision was made, because it may not be obvious to the next person coming. And I think that you did a great job of that with AT&T in, in letting the company alone. You had some great people still in the company, uh, like Steve Hooper and, and uh, Nick Kowser, you know, some, some terrifically talented people. Um, and you clearly made decisions. The, the digital one rate was obviously one uh, that transformed the company. But the, the dynamic for us as we built both our Western wireless business and our voice stream business was that we looked at ourselves as, as buying great people. Um, the pejorative of that's not uh, very polite, but when you buy a company and the people come with the company, you're really acquiring those people. And if you don't view them as being the critical asset or one of the critical assets or aspects of the company, you're really missing something. And I think that there is, 
their history is replete with uh, uh, companies that have bought a, a concept or a business, um, fired all the people, and then discovered that they didn't have what they thought they had uh, at the end of the day. And I, I, we always avoided that, and I know you did as well. Well, you leave McCall, you're in your early 30s. You mentioned Western Wireless and Voice Stream. You start, you know, what became Western Wireless, uh, which was kind of mainly a rural carrier, cellular carrier. Then you start a division called Voice Stream, which was PCS, which was new digital, kind of higher or what we call mid-band spectrum. And at the time, this was in the, when 2G was being implemented, pretty much everybody in the U.S. was CDMA or TDMA. You choose GSM uh, because you saw it as potentially a benefit to customers that wanted to roam globally, lower cost because of the larger global scale. GSM was really dominant outside the U.S. You spin off Voice Stream as a separate company. Then you go and you spend, I think it was $2 billion for OmniPoint, $3 billion for, uh, for Ariel. And it seems like in a blink of an eye, you turn around and sell it to Deutsche Telekom for $51 billion, as they called it, a 10-bagger, uh, because it, you know, voice stream stock went from 22 to 200 bucks, like almost overnight. For those who are listening, this is probably before your time, Jamie Lee Curtis was your spokesperson on your TV ads. And I understand she took a lot of her compensation in voice stream stock instead of cash, cash so she became very rich. Was this always your vision that um, you would build this national footprint and sell it to an international carrier as their, we'll call it their U.S. footprint? It, it certainly worked out well, but the uh, dynamic, and I think it's true for most businesses, is um, you um, uh have an operating strategy um, that's really distinct from your M&A strategy. Our goal was to build a national carrier. Um, the um, uh, if I can go back and and comment on a couple of things that you said in the uh, in your question, we started off in rural licensing. Many of the officers, including my uh, my wife Terry Gillespie and I, participated in auctions. We participated in that, and we started acquiring adjacent licenses. Frankly, our original concept, I was still the vice chairman at Macaw. Macaw couldn't afford to build out the rural areas. We wanted to build out the rural areas for Macaw um, as a separate company, but to have a, an attractive roaming arrangement. From my point of view, the sale of Macaw to AT&T, and obviously then I go off the board, um, gave us the freedom to start competing. So the FCC created the PCS band with the specific intent of creating competition in urban areas. We made the decision to go with the GSM technology bluntly, pragmatically. GSM was the global standard for mobile communications, not used in the U.S., but the manufacturers encouraged us that if we committed to a GSM standard in the U.S., that they would support us. Once we got going, we had a dramatic competitive advantage because we were dealing with technology purchased on a global scale. We started our first system launched on leap day 1996 in honolulu and what the market quickly taught us was um, that uh, coverage was the most important thing and we didn't have extensive coverage so we pivoted and about six months after our initial launch we relaunched 
based on a price uh, strategy, we uh, offered what was the outrageous price of 400 minutes for $40. Remember at the time, most people were paying $30 for service plus something 20 to 25 cents a minute. So we had a very competitive product. We targeted our advertising to consumers, to people who had never had phones, in part because we thought people who never had phones before wouldn't miss the coverage that we didn't have to compete against the, the likes of AT&T. So, you know, from our point of view, we had this, uh, this product and it took off the ability to acquire Omnipoint, Ariel, eventually Powertel in the Southeast uh, was largely based on the fact that we had access to the capital markets and we had been much more successful operationally. So again, the operating strategy drove the opportunity in M&A, but I wouldn't say it was an M&A strategy that caused us to take that operating strategy. And I, I would also note we had important partners. Hutchison Wampoa invested a billion dollars into our company in 98. Finally, with respect to the sale to DT, we didn't set out to do that. The, the stock market kind of got away from us and the market believed our business was highly valuable. And I, I literally, I had my CFO reverse engineer some projections and say, okay, in order for us to be worth $200 a share, what do we need to achieve operationally? And I pushed those across the table to my COO, uh, Bob Stapleton, who said, you know, I, I don't think we can achieve these numbers. Um, uh, and he said, you know, if if it comes to this and that's the choice, sell the company. So um, uh, you never get an operator telling you to sell your business. And when he says that to you, you need to listen. So that then led to a process where we literally had a dozen different companies from around the world, half domestic, half uh, international, um, that expressed an interest in buying VoiceStream. And uh, we eventually did a deal that we thought was the right deal to do with Deutsche Telekom. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, wireless icon, John Stanton. You can listen to our show worldwide on iHeartRadio or on your favorite podcast platform like Apple or Spotify. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with Seattle Mariners CEO John Stanton about the business of sports. So turning to baseball, uh, John, I remembered back in Bellevue, Washington, many years ago, you as a Little League coach. Uh, and then I was also coaching Little League with Steve Ballmer. We both coached a team together. Those poor kids survived with all these A-type personalities as coaches. But I knew you liked baseball, but I didn't know you loved baseball the way that you have. You've really made it the second chapter of your life. What is it about baseball that you love so much? I loved it as a kid. I have to confess, I associated it with my dad. Uh, there's a long story I won't uh, bore you with on uh, the Seattle Pilots who played baseball in Seattle in 69. And uh, loved the uh, loved that team when it moved out of town, and you know wanted to be associated with baseball. And I said, if I ever have an opportunity to make sure baseball's safe in Seattle, that I would do that. And my involvement with the Mariners is based in part on that. 
So what are your responsibilities as chairman and CEO? How involved do you get in the operations? Well, Dan, I think it, it's uh, in this sense, it's like any other business in that you hire great people and ask and expect them to do a great job. And in, in our case, we have two presidents. Uh, we have a president of baseball operations, Jerry DePoto, uh, who's a baseball professional, played the game for 10 years, has been uh, in, worked for the Red Sox, the, was the acting GM of the Diamondbacks, uh, was in charge of the Angels, and has now been with the Mariners for over eight years, uh, and the consummate professional. I, I like to think Jerry's the smartest guy in baseball. Um, and then our, our business operations are run by Katie Griggs. Uh, Katie had been uh, in a couple of stops in sports, um, but um, most significantly had run the Atlanta United soccer team. Uh, and, you know, I think brings a, an expertise to the business side of sports, um, which is frankly different than almost any other business that I've been involved in. And the, the three of us represent the leadership team, but those two really run the business on a day-to-day -day basis. By the way, one thing that's different is just valuation. So with company valuations tend to be, you take cash flow and you multiply it, which is really driven by the expected growth rate and that cash flow. I look at major league baseball franchises and what they sell for, and I have no idea. How does, how does the math work? Well, the, um, I, I'm, I'm not expert in that. Um, I would observe that the businesses are generally valued based on a multiple of revenue, uh, which is uh, more typical of a venture capital kind of evaluation uh, process as opposed to a traditional uh, EBITDA cash flow business like those that we've been involved in. Um, I think that the, um, uh, the, the values are based very much on uh, the uniqueness uh, the fact that in general there is one license or one uh, business per market, uh, and so you know you have the opportunity to uh, uh, to to really command that market in terms of the attention of the fans and and the like. But you know, from my point of view, I I, I would quickly add, um, it, it's I think of it as a sacred trust. I, I you know just as uh, I cried as a 14-year-old when the uh, Seattle Pilots uh, left town, I, uh, I think that I have a responsibility to make sure that baseball is played in Seattle by the Mariners over uh, the rest of my life and, and presumably many years beyond that, and that that, that, uh, that commitment on my part um, doesn't really have a price on it. I, I don't expect to ever sell the team. Uh, and therefore, if you're if you're not a seller, you don't really care as much what the price is. You talked about the attention of the fans and the attention span of young people isn't what it was in our generation. Baseball made some changes, which has got to be tough to do for a game that's been around for so long. The pitch clock, you know, larger bases to make it more exciting. Uh, is Major League Baseball considering making more changes? And what's all involved in changing a tradition like baseball? The, um, the game 
has to be responsive to the fans. That's the most important thing. And I, um, I chair the joint competition committee and the what's called the on-field committee, um, both of whom are uh, responsible for the rules. Um, the joint committee is joint with the players and players union and the umpires and umpires union. So, so 11 of us sit around the table in that, uh, in that setting. And we are the decision maker for rule changes like such as those you mentioned also restricting the shift, which we did last year. And we're considering additional rules for future years. Um, but what we do, the first thing our group did, and I I've been doing this for about six years now, um, is we did a fan survey. Uh, the fans are the bosses, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. We don't always do exactly what the fans want, but we try to be responsive to their interests. We ask fans what plays are most exciting to them. Uh, they told us uh, triples, outfield assists, stolen bases, doubles are all you know fun plays. What do they not like? They didn't like it when the pitcher kept throwing over to first base to hold the runner close. Um, they don't like, um, in general, they don't like strikeouts as much as hits. Um, they don't like walks as much as, as hits. Um, and so we have organized ourselves around identifying rules changes that can bring more excitement to the game and therefore bring more excitement to the fans. Um, the second thing that we do is then we get a hypothesis on a rule change use the pitch clock as an example. Is that something that we can do and make the game better without creating unintended consequences? Um, we have the benefit that baseball uh, has a, a series of minor league teams. Each team has four uh, organized minor league teams, a triple A, double A, and two single A teams. So we then tested possible rule changes at the minor league level over a three-year period. Um, and then as a result of that testing, we then at the beginning, with respect to the rules you've asked about, at the beginning of the 2023 season, we implemented those rules that, that both fans wanted and that we thought tested well. Um, and we made tweaks. We had, uh, I believe it was 10 adjustments generally not things that fans noticed, but adjustments to the way the rules were enforced um, by the umpires, um, uh, small tweaks with respect to when the pitch clock would be restarted, how the, um, uh, the shift would be restricted. Um, and we evaluated then at, during the season and at the end of the season, the results. And we looked at everything from, you know, the effect of game length on, uh, concession sales to uh, the number of hits, walks, uh, stolen bases, uh, as well as obviously the, just the length of the games. And we reached the conclusion that those rules were successful. And, you know, actually I'm at a major league meeting uh, right now and we're talking about changes, though there won't there won't be major changes in the 24 season, but there will be some smaller changes implemented in the 24 season. Um, and we're uh, our, the primary focus of the meeting I chaired today was on rule changes for the 25 season. We'll be back in a few minutes with Mariners Chairman John Stanton. This is Dan Hesse, and this is the Mentors Radio. And now, 
Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with Seattle Mariners CEO John Stanton about changes in Major League Baseball. So, John, you're on the board of Microsoft. One of my recent guests was George Brett, and we talked about all the just changes that data and analytics are bringing to the sport. Microsoft's a leader in AI. Do you see AI as becoming a big part of the game? I do, Dan. I, I think AI is going to become a part of almost everything we do. And when uh, we started talking about the uh, the partnership with OpenAI at Microsoft, and I started learning and understanding more about AI, um, I asked both the, my business leader as well as our baseball leaders um, uh, how we could implement AI and incorporate AI into what we were doing to make better decisions, which is ultimately what AI is about. Uh, Microsoft's co-pilot system uh, is a great metaphor for thinking about what AI can do. It doesn't take over, but it sits next to you and helps you think about those things. I think that that from my point of view, um, uh, everything from how you do the lineup to what players do you draft to what players do you promote within your um, minor league system? Um, those are all things that where we can make better decisions if we can incorporate the enormous amount of data that's generated in baseball and produce useful information that helps us make decisions. And the same thing's true on the business side. So, John, how do you define the word success? I think the most important element for me of success is a happy life. Um, and that the uh, thing that makes me the happiest is uh, to have a family that I uh, enjoy and, and love and uh, can spend time with. Um, uh, like you, I've got two boys that, uh, uh, along with my wife, Terry, um, are a nuclear family and, and we love spending time together. And to Success is also enjoying um, the processes and the things that we do in businesses. Um, our, uh, if I look at the different aspects of my life, the Mariners gives me great joy, not just because we win baseball games and, and uh, create un, unforgettable experiences and memories for our fans, but also because of the people I get to work with in that. I, um, I, not a lot of my friends um, uh, sit on public company boards um, because it's a, it's a substantial commitment. But from my point of view, the boards at Microsoft and Costco represent an opportunity to learn new things and to be around interesting people um, and, and fun, in some cases difficult, but in many cases fun decisions. Um, and the um, uh, experiences that I have had uh, at Microsoft and Costco, as well as the other boards I've been on in the past, um, have have filled that part of my life. And um, I guess all those things taken together um, certainly make me feel that I have succeeded in the way I had hoped. In your neck of the woods in the Seattle area, everybody cares about the Mariners. Everybody has an opinion about the Mariners. Everybody has an opinion on how the Mariners could be better. How has your life changed since you've walked into that role? I mean, can you go into a grocery store or a restaurant? Do people leave you alone? 
And is it difficult, let's say, when the Mariners are on a losing streak, you know, to go out in public? Well, I, um, uh, my wife was giving me a hard time on uh, Sunday. We went in and uh, I was at the fish counter at uh, Whole Foods in Bellevue. Uh, and the guy behind the counter congratulated me on a trade that we had uh, uh, had just done with the uh, the White Sox. I, I have no idea how he knew who I was, but he uh, he recognized me and said something. I, I, my experience has been, you know, while, you know, sometimes on social media and on sports talk radio, uh, there are criticisms that, that people I meet in the grocery store are generally positive. Um, people, while everyone wants the team to win, um, I think most people associate teams, sports teams, including your uh, uh, Kansas City Chiefs, um, uh, as we sit on the uh, verge of the Super Bowl, Dan, uh, with the great memories and experiences that they have had, and that that baseball is perfect for families, and it's perfect for businesses to uh, uh, put together a going to a game for a, a company event or outing. And from my point of view. Um, the happiness, I, I talked about the memories that people make at baseball games. That's the joy that I uh, that I get. Um, and it's awfully nice to win. People certainly prefer to win. We'll be back in a few minutes with Seattle Mariners Chairman and CEO John Stanton. You'll find all of our show notes and links at TheMentorsRadio.com. For those who listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or on one of the many podcast platforms that carry our show, if you enjoy these conversations, please give us a good review and tell a friend. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with Seattle Mariners CEO John Stanton discussing success and happiness. So, John, I'm what people would call shopping averse. I hate shopping. But for some reason, I volunteer to go to Costco, even though what I'm typically going for is food and household goods. And I usually time how quickly I can get out of whatever store I go into. I linger in, in Costco. What is Costco's secret? Costco is just a tremendous concept that's been implemented brilliantly by the management team going back to, to Jim Senegal and Jeff Brotman through uh, the great leadership of Craig Jelinek and now with the new CEO, Ron Vakras. Um, they have remained true to a model uh, that delivers value to the members. Um, that if their costs go down in acquiring um, paper towels or water or meat, they reduce the price that the member pays. And so I think that most members understand that as much as any company in America, Costco is on your side as a member. You know, they are your partner. And I think that resonates. And then the other element of it is uh, the uh, treasure hunt that some of our uh, members love and some don't, but that um, things may have moved overnight or since the last time you were in the store, mm -hmm. and therefore you got to go look for it. And uh, whether it's uh, it's pasta sauce or uh, or uh, highlighters, 
um, you know, you uh, you may have to look a little bit, uh, but when you find it, you'll be delighted by the price. You mentioned Kansas City. That's my hometown. I understand Kansas City was one of Macaw's early markets. And I was told the story when you were that young man in a hurry, you were in a real hurry. You drive up to the Kansas City airport, you jump out of your car, uh, and you didn't have time to return the rent a car. You went to, straight to the airline counter, handed the rent a car keys to the agent, and said, Please take care of this for me, and jumped on the plane. Is that true? I, I'm afraid that I was often in a hurry. Um, uh, Kansas, <laughs> Kansas City uh, uh, was uh, one of the first markets uh, that we uh, got a license for. Uh, and so I went in and out of Kansas City, along with Oklahoma City and Austin and uh, Wichita and, you know, Tacoma and, uh, uh, you know, the markets that were our earliest markets at Macaw uh, quickly. And so hopefully somebody eventually returned that rented car. I think that was about 37 years ago. So, John, at one time, a lot of people were talking about you potentially going into politics. You might be a little young for politics, but you know, have, is that possibly in your future? No, I am younger than both uh, uh, President Biden and former President Trump, but I am unequivocally not going to run her office. The uh, uh, my uh, my wife uh, is uh, is uh, pretty shy and uh, prefers privacy, and one of the things that um, uh, that baseball affords me the opportunity to do is to have an opportunity to to work with people and meet people and and have a positive impact on the community. We uh, do a number of philanthropic things in Seattle from uh, supporting youth uh, sports to uh, addressing homelessness with our home base program to being able to have a positive impact on our community. Uh, through uh, hosting the All-Star Game in 2023. Uh, all those things are, from my point of view, the same kind of satisfaction that I think I would have gotten if I had ever run for office. I'm probably, uh, I'll probably be a little disappointed as I uh, get older that I never ran for office, but I'm satisfied with the things I've gotten to do. Well, John, wireless is now a part of our daily lives. Few people have had the impact on the wireless industry that you have, which brings the benefits of wireless to this enormous country of ours. I can tell you personally, I learned to be a better CEO by just watching you in action over the years. To our listeners, please go to thementorsradio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us on the major podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify and on iHeartRadio Worldwide. Please join us next week for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.thementorsradio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.